You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 128 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm still in school holidays, <laughs> so that should pretty much, you know, fill us in as to where we are. I'm in school holidays and a structural edit, so let's, yeah. just, let's just put that right there. No, actually, I'm fine. I'm, I'm very relaxed. Do I sound relaxed? You sound semi-relaxed. I'm not sure I would say relaxed. No, I never sound really. I, I, I can honestly say that I have never in my life sounded fully relaxed. So right. if, I'm, if I'm on the way to relax, that's probably not a bad thing. Okay, that's good. Yeah, well, that's I'm, good. I'm not a relaxed person on any level. Okay. Mm. Well, I, I think I've mentioned before I actually love school holidays because the four boys across the road always go away. <laughs> <laughs> So it's quiet at your house, is it? That's yes, lovely. Yes, because pretty much every day otherwise they're playing in the street, which is okay. I don't mind that. But some, but occasionally, you know, they get the high-pitched screams because they're not teenagers yet. Oh, my yes. God, imagine when they become teenagers. No, you won't see them then. Yeah, but they might have parties, but maybe not because their they do live with their parents, so that's okay. Mm -hmm. <gasps> anyway, uh, so, yes, I do love school holidays and love it when the boys across the road go away. <laughs> and if you're listening... Boys Across the Road's <laughs> mum. She loves them, really. She does. I do. They're very nice and polite and they, I, I have no problems with them. They've never been rude or anything to me. They've been Excellent. nice boys. Excellent. They sound oh. great. But we want to give a shout-out to someone who does not live across the, road, across the <laughs> road from me. In fact, he lives very, very far away oh. from Boone, B-O-O-N-E, and I'm thinking NC is North Carolina, and oh. it's Rick. Rick. Hi, Rick. Rick M62 from Boone, NC, in the US, Ooh. because Rick has left us a review on iTunes. Oh. And he said, yesterday I was followed by Alison Tate on Instagram. It was awesome. <laughs> Hi, Rick. <laughs> Valerie and Alison have the best podcast in the world. I love listening to them and have started listening from the beginning again. I wish they did a podcast every day. Banoffee Pie and Procrastopup are my two <laughs> new favourite words. I started listening because I wanted to write a book and decided research would be the way to start. So I'm glad I found these two. What a wealth of information on all aspects of writing and publishing. Keep up the fantastic work. Hugs from Boone, North Carolina. Rick. There you go, oh, Boone, North hugs Carolina. Hugs right back, Rick. Yes, hugs right back. Thank you so much for listening and hopefully you're listening to, to this because uh, we wanted to give you a shout out for giving us a shout out. So we thank did. you. You've made our day. I've got a question for you, Val. Go on. Just on the back of that because, mm -hmm. you know, I often get my questions in the middle of the spiel and then I have to hold on to them to the end. It's oh, like yes. being an author talk. It's okay. really hard. Yes. Um, have you ever gone back and listened to those early episodes that we that we recorded at all, ever? Um, not 
the really, really early ones. I think I've gone around middle. Right. Um, and I think I I'm often, possibly I scared. I haven't at all. <laughs> yes. And I often wonder, like, if you are listening from the beginning, uh, I wonder if we've uh, – I just wonder if we're different to how we used to be. Because it's been are. over two years now, hasn't it, yes. since we started recording. Yeah. I just wonder if we're – I mean, you know, I, I think we still talk like chipmunks sometimes, but I think maybe we've got a little bit better at it, yeah? I hope we're better at it and hopefully... I, I think our author interviews have really come on. I, yeah. I will say that. I do mm-hmm. feel like our author interviews have become... Because um, I do listen to those and I do feel that, you know, like we've kind of got more relaxed with that yes. maybe. It's just relaxed. Practice, there we go it? again. Relaxed, yes. Look at me, I'm relaxed. Yes. Well, Rick, since you're listening from Yeah, maybe let us know. Yeah. yeah, ping us on social media and, and let us know. We'd love to hear what you think. And we, any, anyone who's gone yeah, back yeah, to the yeah, yeah, yeah. let us know what you think. And listeners, if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we would really be grateful because uh, it really helps us in the rankings. So, Rick, thank you for playing your part in that today. Oh, and just on the reviews, I just wanted to say thank you very much. A couple of episodes ago, I um, just asked people if they had five minutes to leave a review for the Mapmaker Chronicles on Goodreads or Amazon uh, just in the lead-up to my uh, books coming out in the United States, Rick, um, (laughs) in June next year. And I just wanted to say thanks to those people who've done it. And if you do have five minutes to do that, then I would be most appreciative because um, it does help, you know, again, going into a new territory with some good solid reviews behind you is always a useful thing. So it would be great if, uh, if you had five minutes to do that. Thank you. Yes, and it would be it's super easy to leave a review on Amazon or Goodreads and it as Alison said it would make a you know big difference to have some more reviews as she enters the US market next year which is so exciting. So this so is for exciting. the Mapmaker Chronicles. It is for the Mapmaker Chronicles Ooh. books 1, 2 and 3 are coming your way US people so I um yes. I'm very excited about that. Oh my God! It's all happening in the in Alison's world. Oh yeah, all of it. That's why I'm so relaxed. Right. Shall, shall we move on to let's. the world of writing and publishing this week? Yes, let's. What have you got, Val? What have we got? Well, um, we have got a number of things. Firstly, in the first link that we've got is. I'm just trying to read it. <laughs> Should you grow your short story into a novel? Now, I thought that was an interesting one because a lot of people write short stories and I read them and I can have one of two reactions. Oh, well, I mean, there's more reactions than that, but um, (laughs) I often have one of two reactions. One reaction is, oh, my God, this was just a scene. It wasn't a short story. It went nowhere. I was like, it's like nice writing, but it's it's literally just a scene. Mm Mm-hmm. And the other reaction, which is more exciting to me, is when I'm, oh, my God, I want to read more. This should be a much bigger novel. And mm-hmm. I have read one, uh, actually, by Alastair. Alastair, are you listening? That I could tell should have been a novel. Oh. Well, should be a novel. Maybe he's extending it to a novel. And, in fact, I could almost picture it as a television series or a miniseries, maybe not a whole big, long television series, but as the premise for a television series. And I really hoped that the story would continue because I really wanted to know what was going to happen to these characters. I became invested in these characters, even though it was um, a short story. Mm. And uh, it, it set me up for wanting to know... Uh, 
about the backstory of the characters, about what was going to go on, because there was a really good potential plot there. So the question is, if you are writing short stories, because some people just are, are writing short stories and they haven't progressed to novels yet. Some people go straight to novels. It's it's just all it's just different for different people. There are some of your short stories potentially that could grow into a novel. So have you ever experienced that, Al, where you, you know, no. really want it? No. No, 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 stories? I haven't. And I, 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 there's two reasons for that. Um, I think there's two. I'll start with one and okay. then see how we go from there. But the main reason is that I think when I sit down to – a short story is an art form in itself and people yes. who do them really well um, are, are to be applauded because, as you say, often – people um, write a scene or write, you know, there's no ending or, you know, there's sort of this, it's a fragment rather than a story or, or whatever it is. If you can get the whole story, the characterization, all of the things you need to know into a short story, then I think you are personally a genius. Um, <laughs> and if you are writing the short story well, then that's what should be happening. You shouldn't get to the end of the short story and think, I need to know more because it should all be there. Everything you need to know right. should be in that story. I think. Um, so it's one of the reasons I don't write short stories very often. Uh, in fact, rarely. I used to write them more, um, but I I think they remind me too much of, I think they, I started out writing short stories because they were manageable and they felt like um, feature articles, I think, you know, in the yeah, sense that yeah. word count and, and I was writing them for magazines, like for particular markets. Yeah. So I had that idea in my head of what they needed to be and what the magazine was looking for and all of those things. So for me, they were probably a good way, a good sort of stepping stone or putting my toe in the water of fiction just to see what I did. And I had several short stories published in magazines um, through doing that. But once I started writing novels, um, I just never went back to short stories because, as mm. I say, they are difficult particularly when they're done well and the kinds of short yep. stories that I would want to write would be um, probably not what I was writing then and I don't think that I have it in me to write the kind of short stories I want to write. So I don't write them. I write novels for that reason. And look at me, I write series. Like I'm not yeah, even no. writing one novel. I'm yeah. writing like yeah. three or four or five of the same thing. Um, so clearly, you know, stories for me get big pretty quickly. Yeah. So. That's another reason. And so, yeah, no, I've never written a short story and thought, man, that needs to be a novel ever. Wow. Okay. Okay, sorry. Well. But I think Alistair's should be by the sound of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have read, because remember that time I was judging the short story competition? I had to well, read yes, like that, 300. I was going to ask you for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I was going to bring that up because I thought, yes, you read 800 of them or something. Some yeah. insane number of short stories, and some of which I thought, wow, you know, this could go somewhere. Um, so I agree with you that short stories by their nature are meant to be self-contained. However, if you are at the stage of writing short stories like where Al was mm. uh, before and before she decided to progress to novels and you haven't made that leap yet, some things that you can consider that this um, post on Medium um, uh, talks about and and we'll put all of the link in, links in the show notes, of course, which you can find at soyouwanttobearwriter.com.au, they say search the main plot to reveal new stories. So you might actually see that there are any some additions that – would make sense that could be organic to your story that, you know, can just, there, there are, 
there are more possibilities for your characters or more possibilities for where the story is going. Another thing that they say is perhaps you can add new characters. This may or may not work, but if you can add some new characters to your short story potentially, that could also pull itself out into a longer novel. I remember one short story that I did read recently, which was about a psychologist and dealing with a particular client, and it was a really good self-contained short story, but I could totally see that with more clients, you know, more clients of the psychologist mm-hmm. um, being fleshed out into a bigger novel, not necessarily in a series of short stories, but actually, you know, just a bigger novel. Mm-hmm. Um, potentially it could uh, include more subplots as well because, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that there's another way of fleshing things out. This, these tips may not apply to all of your short stories, but it's something worthwhile to consider, particularly if there's a one short story that, somehow resonates with you there's a pull on you to do something with a little bit more and you're not sure what um yeah have a look at the link which we'll put in the show notes so you can see whether any of these might be helpful tips for you Mm. i think excellent okay we'll move on since al doesn't want to turn any of her short stories into (laughs) okay right (laughs) yeah we're just going to leave that right there okay one thing that i think al will relate to Right. Is um, uh, it's a post from the right practice, as in W-R-I-T-E practice, mm-hmm. and it's called Three Steps to Write When Life Goes Nuts because of late your life has gone nuts. Now, at the moment, you can see in school holidays, but mm. um, not that long ago you were talking about your crazy to-do list and all of yes, the things that that's were happening. Um, and at the time, I was also being a little bit overwhelmed and talking like a chipmunk. <laughs> so <laughs> there, what are some things, three steps to write when life goes nuts because sometimes you actually think, I don't have the time, I'm just not even going to do it. But if you don't do it, you can get out of – you can get out of the habit. Yes. And six years later, you (laughs) you decide to come back to it, right? Yes, that's correct. So one of the things – I mean, these are fairly straightforward, but I I, I will – I'll just – go through them quickly. Step one, believe you're still a writer because sometimes life can get nuts with, you know, all the other things that you do. Mm. Step two, remember your passion. And step three, write the wrong stuff. And I think that that is particularly useful because, you know, don't have any pressure or expectation that you're going to write a Pulitzer Prize winning thing when life is nuts. You still need to stay in the habit and still need to get into the, stay in the discipline because sometimes it's the crap that you write that eventually emerges into gold. But these are straightforward tips. So what are your tips, Al, for when life goes nuts? How do you make sure you fit the writing in? Uh, Okay. So that's an interesting question because it does happen to me quite regularly. Mm. Um, So I, well, I set deadlines and I know that that sounds like an insane thing to do when you're already, you know, under a lot of pressure and things like that. But I just find that if I don't have a deadline, there's no impetus. Like, I, And even if the deadline yeah. is too far away, you know, if I've got something that's not due until, say, the end of October at this mm. point, I, I will put it off until the 27th of October. <laughs> like, you know, it's, I, will, I will just find 
anything else to do yep. um, and focus on other things. And sometimes that's okay because if you, if you are in the, in the process of a really busy period of time, you mm. go, okay, I'm going to set the deadline on October 31. And as the 27th approaches, you're like, okay, you know what? I have to prioritize this now and do mm. it. And that's, and you, you find that you can, if you have to. So deadlines are very, very useful things. I, I like writing the wrong stuff. I think that um, mm. as long as you're writing something, it's important. It's one of the reasons I blog. And I know that that sounds like an insane thing. How could that be the wrong stuff? But, you know, the time that I spend on a blog post is time that I could be writing, you know, working on a novel or doing something that I'm supposed to be doing. But mm. I still make time to do it because it makes me um, it brings me back into touch with my own voice. Um, it makes me happy, particularly if I write something that I'm particularly proud of. Um, yeah. It gives me that short-term validation that people still like what I do. And mm. so it allows, it just gives me that little bit more, as I said, it's about impetus for me as far as, you know, because it's very, very easy to be stopped by the roadblocks. And what you want to try to do is just to keep yourself, you know, moving forward, even if you're moving forward in a slightly de like via a detour that needs yeah. to be some kind of sideways movement. Um, yeah. So I do that. And I also, you know, I make time. And I know we've talked about this a yes. thousand times um, and everyone's like, I'm so busy, I can't possibly find the time to ride and mm. everything's going on and the kids are doing this, the kids are doing that, blah, 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 blah. I, I still make time. So I, I even if it's, again, you know, late at night, we've talked about the fact that I have this late night writing, you know, problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if it's late at night, uh, I, I just make sure that I do a little bit and just, again, it's just about keeping that project moving forward, even if it's only 200 words and, yep. and even if it feels like wading through concrete, which it does, yep. and anyone who's ever played along on one of my writer book with Al <laughs> challenges will know. Um, and you can see when my life is busy. Like I look back over those challenges and the word counts and things like that. And I can see because I'm like 200 words, 220 words, 250 words, you know, Mm. but every day. And so by the end of the week, I've still got 1400 words Yes, or, you know, more. So it's just that, you know, it, it is hard and it's particularly difficult when you're, when it's, when life goes nuts and you're not feeling great, like in that sense of maybe something, there's something going on in your family that's not mm. brilliant, like it's, you know, and it's stressful. But I also find, um, and again, this is, you know, but writing is my is my happy place. Writing is where I go into a zone that is not my real life. And so I look forward to going there and I make myself look forward to going there because it just gives me that, again, 30-minute respite from mm. whatever's going on around me. So... Wow. Awesome. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think that, um, yeah, making the time is so, so important. Mm. And I think that that feeling of panic that you get, like it's mm. like a feeling of rising panic. Mm. I, I get it. Mm. It's, it simmers, but it never overflows, but it's this feeling slow simmering, but rising panic. When you know you have 800 things on your to-do list, mm. uh, forcing yourself, and, and but particularly then you've got, say, a project or a, a word count or a deadline or whatever uh, that you know you need to devote a chunk of time and you think, I just don't have time for that right now. Mm. And it's so easy to think, I'll just have to let that go or do that in the school holidays or whatever. Mm. And, and But if you – what I make myself do is force myself to start it because it never, ever, ever takes as much time as you think. And when you do it, that suddenly that rising panic – is quelled and it's just great for your anxiety and yeah it's funny isn't it and it is it is that feeling I I get that feeling too is that you can feel that anxiety Mm. rising and you and all you have to do really to stop it 
is to sit down and do even a small chunk because yep. you feel better for having done something, even yep. if it's not the whole project, even if you don't get the whole 1,200 words or 800 words or whatever it is you're trying to do done. If you get some of it done, I, I used to trick myself, particularly if I had a feature article that I had to write, it was due and I, I wasn't getting to it and I was hating every minute of it and I was stressed about it. I'd write the box, you know, right, if the they box. had to have a 10-point oh, list right, on it, yeah, I'd write yeah, the yeah. box. The breakout and I'd have box. that the breakout box, or I'd write the opening paragraph, or I'd mm. do one case study if it was a three case study story or something like that. I'd write one case study, and then the next day I'd do another case study. Like if I wasn't able to get that massive chunk of time I needed to get the whole thing done, I would at least do a little bit, and yep. it would just calm that horrible feeling of having homework that you're not doing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, speaking of freelance writing or and deadlines, uh, I wanted to. dedicate the next section of this episode to Brad. Hello, Brad. Oh, hi, Brad. Yes. Brad uh, recently, well, last week, this week, started his new life as a full-time freelance writer. He was Oh, yes, I've seen him online. Hi, Brad. Yes. Hi, Brad. He was in teaching and he's taken the plunge and congratulations, Brad, for a start. So I thought it would be useful to give Brad and other people in Brad's situation some tips. If this is your first week of freelance writing after you've actually thrown in a full-time job and salary, what would your advice be, Al? (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, Val. To set yourself up for success. Gee, I love it when you put me on the spot like this. Okay, my first tip, don't panic. Well, quite specific in that Mm. it's not about just getting freelance articles published while you've got a day job. It's, it's, this is now your full-time gig. Okay, so my first, my first tip is not to panic because I I find what happens is that you, that you get there, you sit there and it's, you've got this week ahead of you, this open gaping week ahead of you and you start and you panic. And the first thing you do is send out 35 pitches to anyone that will have them. And it's a scattergun approach and you're not quite sure. And then you're anxiously waiting for things to happen. And then you get 25 jobs at once and they're all got a deadline of the set, you know, the following week and you're very stressed. So don't panic. It would be my first, um, my first tip. Um, and so then my second tip, would be to 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 think you know be a take take a strategic and measured approach to what you're about to do so I think we've talked before about the long-term and the short-term projects. Mm. So I would now uh, if I was starting now because um, clearly when I started there weren't websites like there are now but I would be looking for some of those quick turnaround jobs that I can do uh, for online sites and I would be looking at the sort of response articles because a lot of the time what they're looking for with those sorts of articles is something in the news and you can get an article up quickly about mm. some aspect of what's in the news. So I'd be looking for to be pitching those kinds of articles knowing that they have a very quick turnaround. So I'd be looking at those and in the meantime, I'd be sending out three or four pitches very well targeted, like really thought about strategic targeted uh, pitches to longer term projects like magazines and places just like that. Mm, what mm. would you do, Val? But three or four per what? Uh, well, we're only on day one, aren't we? So I'd be oh, looking. Yeah. yeah. So I, I wouldn't be sending three or four a day. 
for starters because I just think people get themselves into such a mess. Um, I'd be looking at maybe one a day for the first week just to see what the kind of response was and how the turnaround went because the worst thing you can do as a new freelancer is not deliver. So if you send this stuff out and you say that you're going to be able to do it, you need to be able to do it. So make sure that you're not overstepping or overreaching and you, you want to take more, I would take, more of a slowly, slowly approach than scattergun, let's get it all going and freak myself out sort of situation. Yeah. You yep. have to deliver yep. and you have Absolutely. to be reliable. Great advice. Great mm. advice. What about you, Val? What would you do? Um, I think that you do need to treat it like this is your new job. So you need to start at whatever time you decide and get into mm. the discipline of that mm-hmm. and make sure that you're not watching Oprah in the middle of the day or whatever show is on these days. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, don't let your friends drop in like we were, we've spoken about in previous episodes um, and make sure you work at it solidly and you do need to have a combination of obviously writing but in, because you're starting out, you need to have a fair chunk of your day uh, pitching. And, yes. And the trouble is that people say, oh, I'm not getting any traction as a freelance writer and they've sent out one pitch in six weeks. Yeah, and no. It's just one pitch in six weeks. That's insane. I think Alison's right. Minimum one a day while you're yeah. starting out. It yeah. will get to the stage where you don't need to pitch that much that much at all because, you know, the editors will come to you because they've you've established a relationship with them. But uh, definitely, it's all about being proactive. I think that the people who think that they when they hang out a shingle and the work is going to walk in the door, that's where it doesn't work. But I know Brad is a really proactive guy, so I know he's going to be very successful. In this oh, I would also time. add at this point too, um, just given you know given the conversation we're having, uh, when you talk about hanging out a shingle, if I was a freelance writer starting today, I would make sure that I had a website in position before I actually, you know, started. Um, because you know, the, People need to be able to find you. There's got to be some kind, and this is part of your business as well. So yeah. this business of, of having a profile, it relates to freelance writers as well. You need a website. You need to be active on social media. And when I say that, I mean, I, I, you know, you don't need to go nuts, but be on Twitter, like looking at what editors are talking about, looking at what people are talking There are yep. so many story ideas so many. in what people are talking about. Look at what's so trending. Many. Get yourself online. You know, you've got to actually – actively do this stuff and you need to set aside time each day just to have a trawl, see what's going on, see what um, websites, particularly for short-term work, see what websites are running, what kinds of stories they're looking for. Um, This is part of the job. This is not something that's, you know, like this this aspect of, you know, networking as a freelancer is absolutely essential and it is part of the job. So you need to make sure you set time aside for that too. And just remember that when you, we say that you need your own website, you don't need to spend five thousand no, dollars no, on a no, fancy no, no. website. No. It can be it can cost nothing. Like yeah. you can get it from Wix, W I X or Squarespace or even Blogger. Just, you yeah. can just get a cheap free uh, or extremely low cost website simply to be findable but it doesn't have to be fancy or have lots of bells and whistles as long as it doesn't look dead ugly. But of course Anything from, you know, Square, Squarespace or Wix or those pre-templated sites looks fairly decent. So I think you'd be fairly safe there. Mm. All right, let's move on to our giveaway for this week. This is something a bit different. Mm. We have a graphic novel pack from Ooh. Shane W. Smith. 
Oh, and we interviewed Shane yes. several, several podcast episodes ago Yes, about so, these novels, so it'd be it, worth having a look. Yep. Yes, absolutely. So now we have a graphic novel pack and uh, this will you'll receive volume one and volume two of Undad. That's <laughs> U-N, Undad, as in your dad. So <laughs> it's more than just another zombie story. Undad is about the challenges of being a husband and father while being literally dead inside. Undead was shortlisted in the 2015 Australian Shadows Awards for the Best Graphic Novel. So entries close midday, Monday, 10th October, 2016, Sydney, Melbourne time. And to enter, just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Want to transform your writing process? Our course, Two Hours to Scrivener Power, shows you how to get up and running on the world's most powerful writing software program, Scrivener. Presented by super user and author Natasha Lester, you'll learn how to get started with Scrivener and master it and learn from Natasha's insights on how to navigate and optimise the program so you can transform and simplify your writing process. If you've been waiting for the right opportunity to learn Scrivener, this is a step-by-step guide to help you get there. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you can learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash power. All right, time for word of the week. Okay. (laughs) Hit me, Val. Have you used this word before? Imprecation. That's I-M-P-R-E-C-A-T-I-O-N. Imprecation. I think it's a word that I... I don't use myself, but I have seen it. And you know where I see it? And this is going to make you laugh. Go on. I see it mostly in romance novels. Really? Uh-huh. What? What? Like That's the bizarre. hero will swallow an imprecation or he will, do you know what I'm saying? Like, swallow an imprecation? That's, that's where I see it. Yeah, like you're swallowing. Well, you're swallowing your swear words. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's how it's used. They do. I'm telling you, that's where that's I see it. So anyway, you, you tell us what it means and then everyone can have a giggle. <laughs> this is used to describe when you're swearing at someone but specifically wishing them ill yeah. or even wanting, to, wanting them to die. So yeah. you might say something like, the man yelled vicious imprecations at the mugger who tried to steal his car. Yeah, I didn't yeah. actually want to give an example of an imprecation because that would sound really bad and there might be people, children listening. Well, we might get an explicit rating on Yes, well, on iTunes, which would be that. a disaster. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> imprecation, if you want to use that, if you want to use the word of the week in your blog posts uh, as some uh, fabulous people are doing, please do let us know on social media. We'd love to have a look. We would. So... Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Right. Who have you got for us, Val? I have got 
Catherine Johnson. Mm -hmm. Now, Catherine Johnson um, actually started life off as a science writer, but she has now written her second novel. The first novel was Pescador's Wake, um, Pescador's Wake, sorry, and the second novel, and I became intrigued when I read the blurb for this novel, Mm -hmm. is called The Better Sun, and Mm -hmm. it's actually only just been released, and when I interviewed Catherine, she had she didn't even have her own copy of the book yet. It wasn't even in her hot little hands just yet. Um, But we, you know, had a good chat about her journey into writing and her her experience in writing this second novel, which is set in Tasmania. I've got a thing for Tasmania, I think. It's probably why, (laughs) yeah, one of the reasons I... um, Just why you live in Sydney. (laughs) I know, I don't want to live there. No, no, no. Too cold, too cold. Um, But nice place to visit. Right. and, you know, Catherine lives there and she has set her novel there, there. So let's have a listen to Catherine. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Valerie. Thank you for your interest. Now, I'm really excited about uh, your new book. I have a, a thing for Tasmania as well. <laughs> so very, very keen um, to see what it's all about. But tell readers, I mean, and listeners who haven't read the book yet, what is it about? Look, Tasmania is an amazing place and um, and that's really what inspired the book to start with, the um, the landscape of the cave um, country up in northern Tasmania around the area of Mole Creek. So it's ancient, it's called karst country, this limestone country. In fact, the stone was um, formed between 400 and 500 million years ago. So it's just, it's this ancient, ancient country and um, an incredible landscape where you have a sort of a beautiful green thin film of pasture going across the top and underneath there are there are huge caverns and in fact 300 caves in the area and when I first saw it it just it completely um, blew me away and inspired me and made me think about this this other world going on underneath dairy farms so I mean Tasmania has lots of different you know incredible landscapes and this is this is just one of them and um, and one that I think in terms of writing, in terms of um, literature, is just so evocative for so many reasons. Yes, and so this is about two brothers, isn't that right? That's right, that's right. And so apart from being inspired by the landscape, there's actually a, a, there is a true story of two little boys up there who discover a cave called Maracoopa Cave, which is open to tourists now. But the story goes that they discovered the cave and they played around in it for a couple of years before they um, ever told anybody. And so, you know, the combination of two little boys discovering this enormous underground world and keeping it a secret and the and the absolute incredible landscape that it is, um, that's where as soon as I saw it and heard that story, I hopped back in the car and thought, there's a book, there's a book that has to be written about this. Right. So it's inspired by a true story of two young brothers who've discovered this cave, but yours is a work of fiction. Is that right? It's, it's completely fiction. So the only the only truth is that two little boys did find a cave up there. Mm-hmm. Um, James and Harry Bayard, their names were. Mm-hmm. Um, and the family, I think, ended up having it as a tourist cave. But um, this story is, is um, inspired by the idea that there were two boys finding a cave, but it's completely fiction. And the premise of your book is that they discover this cave and one of them goes missing. 
That's right. So um, dun, when dun, I dun. <laughs> <laughs> already intrigued, <laughs> it's um. I just thought, you know, what 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 would what would make them keep a cave a secret? Why would they keep it a secret? And mm. and and what would happen if one of them didn't come out? And what would the other one do? And you know, would is it possible that if they were keeping it a secret, would they be afraid of something? Would they be afraid of their 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 parents or what what would what would motivate them to keep it a secret in the first place? And then if if something terrible happened what would the other one do and what would be the the effect of that on on him and his family and the community and 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 so forth and did all of these questions swirl around you know your brain as you were in the car driving away or did it form over time um the, it certainly started right that moment I, I actually get this um i really get this visceral response to an idea i i, I literally get goosebumps on my arms wow. and i think i think this is i just have to i have to um I have to explore this more and the, the ideas sort of start coming and um, I, I really, I knew that, that that this was going to be um, something that I'd be obsessed with for quite a while, which I have been. So it's wow. been a six-year project. Six years? Seriously? It has. It has. Oh, really? Goodness. It has. Mm. Wow. Not just, not just that. I mean, I've been doing um, other other sure. work in the time, but it has, from the moment of the idea to to now, it's it's six years. Wow. Mm. So you, this is your second novel and your it first is. novel was in 2009, Pescador's Wake. That's and right. And how soon, I mean, after you wrote that novel, did you think, okay, I'm ready for the next one? Was it actually during while you were writing the first manuscript and did this idea form or did you know what was the timeline say um they do tend to overlap so in fact there was another one in between which is sort of on the back burner at the moment which I'm sure will be resurrected at at, at some point it just wasn't quite the right second book Mm. um so so this one came about after Pescadors and um but it did overlap with the the other one um, and then it's sort of overlapping with the next one as well. So <laughs> there tends, there does tend to be a period of overlap when one is um, being finished off, and you have the idea for the next one. Um, and and perhaps even as with this last one, I've been editing it and trying to you know write the the next one at the right. same time. Which is, it's 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 nice when there is a period when one is finished and you just have the one on your mind. I yes. think that's, <laughs> that's much more comfortable. So you're also a science writer. What kind of work do you do with that? So that's my training, yes. So I've got a, um, an honours degree in science and, and a degree in journalism as well. So so I trained as a science writer and then I, I worked um, for university and for um, CSIRO for a long time and then freelance writing. So it's, it's, it's really um, mostly biological sciences and um, so marine science, um, but but. I did some work for a forestry um, research organisation as well, freelance. So, tip, mostly biological sciences is is um, is my interest of, with the science writing. Mm. Now, when you were younger, did you think I want to grow up and be a science writer? Did it was that the goal, or did you were you interested in science and then you discovered writing later? Um, I always I've always loved writing, right. and so as a as a kid, I used to try and I'd. I'd Use writing as a bit of a um, 
creative release, I think. My mum's a, a visual artist and writing seemed to be my my um, way of being creative. Mm-hmm. But I also loved biology and nature. And so, uh, in fact, it, um, when I finished school and was trying to decide what to do, I, I, wanted, I couldn't quite decide between them. So I went and spoke to the dean of both <laughs> faculties oh. and they said, why don't you combine them, which is what I did. Wow. And, um, and that was great. It was a great thing to do. Okay, so when did the interest in fiction writing kick in? So it was when I was working at CSIRO. So I'd written I'd written um, factual information about um, deep sea fishing and and fisheries science and um, overfishing and and so on. And I knew that there was there was a human story behind that story as well. Mm. So that's where that's where the idea for Pescador's Wake came from. So I, lo- I love the. Um, I love the non-fiction writing, but there's something there's something very liberating about writing fiction that um, that draws me in as well. So that's that's what I'm I'm devoting myself to at the moment, just the the um, the, the freedom of writing fictional stories. But I do always manage to weave in a bit of science because mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. So yeah, you talk about the freedom of writing fiction. How what is that like when you're so used to obviously, you know, being a science journalist, you have to get your facts right and you have to be really clear and concise and accurate in the way you express whatever it is that you're writing about. So after so many years of that kind of rigor what did it feel like, like that you could literally make anything up, <laughs> couldn't you? That, oh, it's, it's true, but I guess the stories that I've written so far do have um, – I mean, certainly the fisheries one had a lot of research in it mm. um, and and I had it checked by somebody who was a um, – who was a um, an expert in the field, and the caving one too. So, um, so we joined. My husband, I say we. My husband and I actually joined a um, a caving group to do the research for the story. Really, we did, and and wow. went under, underground and really had you know had the experience the, the the experience emotionally of being underground and turning off the lights and seeing what you can hear and and what you can see, of course, which is nothing, mm-hmm. um, and. But also getting them to check the facts and um, and making sure that the because the the main character in the story is a as an entomologist, so he is interested in cave fauna. Um, so that you know, there's there there is a research component as well um, in the fiction that I write. But it's very liberating to be able to talk about characters and their feelings and their <laughs> their their gut response to things and and their loves and their losses and. So All that sort of stuff. Are you now concentrating on fiction full time, or are you combining both? Um, at the moment, I'm I'm totally um, doing just fiction. I'm in fact doing a PhD at the University of Tasmania mm-hmm. for my next book, so completely fiction oriented. Wow. But I will pick up I will pick up uh, science writing again in future, in some capacity, I'm sure. But at the moment, it's 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 fiction. So tell us, when you were formulating this story, obviously you had that reaction, you got goosebumps, you thought that this is it or there's going to be something in this. What do you then do to actually map out the story? Do you map it out or do you just let it flow and see what happens or did you have to know what happened before you could get there? 
I'm definitely a little bit more of a follow your nose kind of writer, which I know really? I am. And I know that other people aren't. And in fact, I've heard it described as you're either a plotter or a pantser. And yes. Pants are being by the seat of your pants, and I, I, I do, I do do a bit of both, and and I find that I need to have a general idea of the of the shape of the story. You know what what I, what I want to feel will happen, how it will how it will resolve, and what the the general shape of it, and the sort of character that you're you're dealing with, and so forth. But I really find it an incredible process in that the writing, just the process of writing seems to just spark off so many ideas and so many, it's like putting a puzzle together and it's only, it only seems to be when you, when you start to, to put those pieces in place, do you see the connections and do other ideas spark? And it, it, if I think if I'd completely plotted it out in great detail to start with, I'd miss all sorts of opportunities that would arise along the way. But having said that, the way that I do it um, sometimes can present problems in that you you uh, can find that you have gone down a road that perhaps um, doesn't work out as, as you hoped and you have to backtrack or you have to really – this book has had a lot of reworking. It's mm. – it's uh, in fact, it started off in first person oh. <laughs> and it's it's turned to third person, which is quite a big change when you've yeah, written, uh, written the whole book. Yeah, entire book. <laughs> it really is. And and even the the character that I had had quite a quite quite a uh, a makeover after I had initial lots of people read the book and respond to him. Yeah. So I, I think the process of of writing as you go, it's I, mean, I enjoy it because it's an adventure for the writer as well. Then you don't know where yeah. it's going to end up, and you you therefore uh, are also excited about where it's where the journey is going to take you. So I think that's a really nice really nice part of it mm. so but, yeah, yeah, go there's, on. there's, there's go a downside on. I think and, and the downside is just that you might end up reworking more an entire book <laughs> <laughs> at the end yeah wow so take me back to before Pescada's Wake and actually just give us a couple of sentence summary on on the premise of that book first so that one is it's set on the Southern Ocean and it's also set in South America in Uruguay and in Tasmania and it's about um, a deep sea fishery, the Patagonian toothfish fishery that at that time there was a huge illegal fishery operating uh, because people in their own countries were having to uh, go further afield to catch fish. So an Australian patrol vessel pursues a Uruguayan vessel and it's the story of the men on board both boats and their families back on shore Mm. so when okay so before that you were doing science journalism and you something inspired you to to write this story what did you then do on a practical level to to make that happen because especially when you're so used to writing in such a structured way did you you know just start free writing did you do exercises did you um just find it came really naturally to you how did it happen so i i really literally started chapter one (laughs) (laughs) it's very linear Mm -hmm. and i can't recall now whether chapter one remained chapter one or not Mm -hmm. but i i do i did start i did start you know with a character and with a beginning and um and launched into it launched into it that that way I didn't wow. I had it's a while ago now actually that book so I'm having to rack my brain a little bit to remember the details of of 
of it. But I did. I had done a lot of research already, so it wasn't as if I was um, going in cold. Mm. Although I do find sometimes um, with the research, I think you need to do a, a, enough research to launch you off. Mm. And I do sometimes then find that you'll you'll discover gaps along the way. And sometimes I will literally just leave that a gap and flag it to myself that I have to come back and fill that in rather than lose the momentum of the writing process mm. driving you forward. But I'd done I'd done the research and and no I I literally started. I did just start. Wow. I, I did um I did join I did do a novel writing course that the Tasmanian Writer Centre ran. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was that was for my next manuscript actually, mm. just because I felt like it would be good to to hone the craft and to sure. learn you know more about the in journalism you learn a particular way of writing and I'd done mm. feature writing which is much, which is more creative by its nature, mm. but I was I felt that perhaps I was missing something by not doing not doing some kind of um, course and that was a structured one year course and and it provided a workshop environment so we would critique each other's work um so that that was quite a valuable experience as well Mm. so there's been much discussion these days about tasmanian noir (laughs) right especially following i am the kettering incident which was of course the miniseries that was recently on television set entirely in tasmania and um you know uh, really plays a lot on the sense of place and the um it it drew on a quite a bleak landscape and uh, a lot of um you know hidden mysteries kind of thing um do you is that something that you have noticed or something that you are drawn to i I suppose that does exist and and the way that the cave story has uh evolved and just the landscape that it's come out of lends itself to that i think it's mole mole creek the area where these caves are uh has a backdrop of the great western tears which are these amazing cathedral like rocks Mm. and that whole alpine um landscape when you get up onto the the ridges and the plateaus and so forth is it's just it's quite a hard landscape in that it's it's battered and the the trees are small and the alpine vegetation is is short and sort of um weathered and it's and it's cold and uh, and so forth i think there's a harshness there that that lends itself to that and i suppose the fact that i was inspired by caves um, caves clearly are a dark, a dark landscape, um, and and just and and seem to seem to evoke ideas of of underworlds and mm. secrets and um, hidden stories and um, a dark a dark side to an otherwise um, you know very bright green dairy mm. uh, landscape. Which which is a lovely landscape, and my my husband have family actually from that area, and I'm I'm a little concerned that um that I that I might be portraying it as a darker place than it really is. <laughs> so when you are writing in the throes of writing, um, and you're really getting stuck into the the story, what's your typical day like? Do you try and set a achieve a certain number of words or do you have a set routine you follow? Tell us about your writing process really, your writing day. So I do write every day, not so not so um, 
much on weekends, although I often squeeze in a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. But typically, so I have I do have children, so they're now um, both school age. So I'm my days tend to be once they're at school, I, I sit down and I. I write like a maniac <laughs> until <laughs> until it's time to to um, to launch into taking them off to whatever activities they're involved in and so forth. Right. Um, afterwards, but the the day really is. I often read reread the chapter that I wrote the previous day, or or, or when I was last working on that chapter. If I'm if I'm working, um, if let's say I'm working on chapter four, I'll I'll read chapter three. Um, even if I'm just revising chapter four rather than mm. writing chapter four and just get myself back in the back in the flow of the story. Mm. But I also discovered that I'm that I'm probably a bit of a weaver when it comes to writing. So I do back and forth, back and forth a bit right. to pick up. So because as if I'm following my nose, I'll have an idea that will um, it might actually impact on something further along in the story or or back earlier in the story. And so I tend to have to go back and. Um, rework a little bit before I can go forward again. So you do that so as you go along? I do tend to do that as I go along. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so um, do you have certain parameters like I'm going to do this for four hours or certain targets like I'm going to achieve 1,000 words or 2,000 words or something like that? I have, I have, I do keep an eye on the word count. I do like to sort of think, I wonder if I can get to, you know, 87,000 today rather than mm-hmm. 86,000. But I don't, that's not my primary um, goal. It's normally to, it's normally to finish a, a, a thought process really. So often mm. it's to the end of a chapter. It's, it's to, it's to have some kind of resolution in my thinking so that whatever I've been carrying in my head for that particular thought process I, I need to get to the end of that mm. before I can leave it so it doesn't it's it's more about that than it is about a word count for me because um I don't want to lose I don't want to lose that that thought really or mm. the, the you know the elements of that thought that I've I've had in that in that day why do you think it took six years this uh, look I do wonder too with this one <laughs> Because the one, the one I'm writing next, I think won't won't be like that, and and I'm hoping that others won't be as well. It's been a friend of mine said, if this was a birth, you know, you've had, yeah. <laughs> you've had the 24 hour labour plus the plus the this and the that, and the, it's it's had so many. It, it's been a bit of a protracted um, birth in a way, yeah. but and I think it's just that I started off. The book started off with a character who was who was deeply flawed, really, from his experience as a child. Because it, so it's, it used to be called Kubler this story, and it's now called The Better Son because it's about the dynamic between the brothers um, and their relationship with their father, in particular, actually, and the competition between them um, because the one is favoured by the father. Really, is what happens, and the the boy, the surviving boy revisits the cave as an adult and he's such a flawed character from what has happened when he was a child that when I first wrote this book he was understandably flawed but it made it a little bit difficult I think to sympathize with him because he was um you just didn't care about him as much as you might because of all his flaws he was just a little bit a little bit too far down that that line so 
I needed to make a character, make change his character to one that you would really um, care about and show show why he is the way he is. And that meant not just changing his character. And in fact, that's why I changed it from first to third person because mm. it needed to be, when it was first person and he was like that, you were too, he was a little bit painful. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... And also because the story used to start off with him as an adult and then and then going back and working his way through it all, um, you didn't really have a sense of why he'd become the way he did. So mm. I had to not just change him, but I had to restructure. So wow. I had to, rather than have a story where he goes back as an adult and goes through the cave and mm. as he does that, have lots of flashbacks mm. to his past, it became a story where I told the past it's a more linear story, I guess. I told the past in part one and I told the present in part two. Mm. Um, and and that had lots of advantages in that um, it, it quickened the pace mm. of his journey through the cave as, a, as an adult and it um, allowed you, I think, a better insight into the, their world as children and it allowed you to see why he becomes the character that he, that he is Um so it yes it worked it it just required a lot of thinking and a lot of re um rethinking to get to get it right mm. and yes mm. wow so what's next for you what are you working on now what's is it also set in Tasmania uh no it's not actually um <laughs> no it's not it's uh it's Australian um but also it's set set overseas mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 a little it's a little too early to talk about really because it's um, it's in that formation process and yeah. um, but yes we, I'd like to talk about that down the track but it's sure. it's still as as this one has I'm sure it will evolve <laughs> yes. a lot from where it is and if I tell you what it's about now <laughs> six months time it will be a little different <laughs> so on a practical level can you share with us if you use any particular you know, apps or tools with your writing or do you just use plain old Word? I use Word. Right. <laughs> I use Word. Although for the one I'm doing um, for my PhD, um, it's heavily research-focused as well and more so, in fact, than the others have been. And so I'm using EndNote oh. and that's particularly because um, I'm doing it as a PhD and I have to have a, um, yeah. a thesis that goes along with it. So my research has to be very rigorous. But having said that, it's it's a really useful way of keeping a, a library of your um, sources. Yep. And, you know, even if you just use it for that purpose and you can put research notes into it and so forth, it's it's really a valuable way to track your sources and and I would use it again. So, that yes, I, I think that's a fantastic thing. And then I use – I'm sure lots of people do. They use – I put comments to myself in the document – yeah. all over the place to come back and fill something in or research something more deeply. And so what's your advice for aspiring writers who, you know, hope to be in a position where you are one day and they've got this burning story that has given them goosebumps but, you know, they, they hear stories that it can be hard to get published or they're not sure how, how to take the story to the end. What's your advice to them? Look, I think it is a really hard game and I think – and it's um, it's even though you have one book published, it doesn't mean that it's it's that the second one is guaranteed of being published or the third one. And I think um, you have to love doing it, mm. 
and you have to um, be driven by – in fact, I don't know what drives the process really. I think <laughs> okay. I think it seems to be I – feel, I feel a need to do it and I really enjoy um, – doing it most of the time I really enjoy doing it not that there aren't frustrations there are certainly frustrations and there there are there are things that um there are periods of time too where it's very it's you know it's quite an intense thing but I think it's um you have to really you have to really want enjoy the process and I think you just have to be really really um you have to believe in yourself and you have to probably find a probably Probably find another writer who who you can um, share work with, mm. somebody whose work and opinion you respect, and that you can give each other feedback and um, support. Because I think I've come across, in fact, um, both these books. I was very fortunate to win um, Varuna Manuscript Development Awards for mm. um, the, the Harper Collins Awards. In fact, so the first book's a Harper Collins book. The second one's actually a Ventura book. But the those that those awards enabled me to work um, with an editor, and also um, there were four other writers, so we all stayed in house at Verona for ten days. And that sort of community of writers and taking yourself seriously as a writer and feeling like you are being taken seriously as a writer was so valuable. And um, I've kept in touch with people from that one person in particular, and we um, we swap work, and it's just it's it's. It's just a great way of because there, there are times you certainly need to buoy each other up and mm. and keep going. So I think being really tenacious and um, never never ever giving up, if that's what you want to be doing, mm. is is part of the process. And I think it's part of the process for so many writers. And it's just I think it's just the way it is, unless you're incredibly lucky. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the most challenging thing about? this book, writing this book, obviously? I th- oh, probably the fact that it did it did take quite a long time and a lot of – I think what's challenging – so for me, the change, um, the feedback that I had in terms of perhaps the character needed to be a more sympathetic character, mm. when you first hear that feedback, you – you are a little um, confronted, I think, because of what it what it means and what what you have to change, or or perhaps you know should this be third person or first person? Mm. Trying to trying to work out whether your instincts what your instincts are telling you is right, because that's important too. You don't want to write by committee and find yourself mm. um, chopping and changing all over the place and and write for no one in the end. Really, you need to it needs to ring true to you if you're being given. Um, feedback by somebody you need to feel that 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 sits well with you maybe sit with it for a little while and see whether or not that's what you think would make a better book and I think the best thing to do actually is to set it aside for a while and come back because it's it's you you really get too close to see it with fresh eyes if you don't take a break from it from time to time what was the most rewarding thing about the process no, I haven't actually thought about an answer for that question. I think it's <laughs> – I think – Yeah, actually, you can't even say that you're holding it in your hands because you haven't well, even held it in your I hands, have you? <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I'm nervous about seeing it because it's – you You become so familiar with every sentence in the book mm. and and um, the idea of opening it and, and – um, 
I mean, it'll be wonderful to have it, wonderful to have it in my hand and to be able to see. I suppose that's probably the most rewarding thing. Being, In fact, what's really rewarding, I've had a couple of early, um, lots of feedback on the book, which have been lovely and and people have enjoyed reading it. And that's that actually is the most rewarding part because that's why you're doing it, because you've got a, you've got a story that you want to share and then suddenly these characters that you've invented become real to somebody else and suddenly you're having a conversation perhaps about it or you're, or somebody else is telling you their their impression of of kip in this case mm. then it, it they become real and that actually that is the most rewarding thing i remember that for the first book as well suddenly talking about these these characters as if they're real and they come alive and and there's something really magical about that as a writer and very rewarding Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for spending the time chatting to us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's lovely to be able to be at this point and and talking about the book. So thanks, Valerie. Right, there you go, Catherine Johnson. Well, that was a great interview and I I find the whole concept of Tasmanian noir to be really, really interesting, like that it could be a thing. I know, right? Apparently there's like newspaper articles on it and especially after the Kettering incident and The Hunter, that movie a little while ago with Willem Dafoe. I guess Tasmania lends itself to that sort of thing. I guess it's got all that wild and woolly landscape and cold. It's freezing cold. And was freezing cold all the time. Like oh, I, I went, do you know I had my honeymoon in Tasmania? Weren't you cold? No, it was January. Oh, it still gets cold. Well, it got cold at Cradle Mountain. We had the four seasons in one day. Like, there you go. Including hail. Like, really. It was sunny in the morning and hailing by three o'clock. Um, but and freezing, yeah. But it was really fabulous. So we're kind of keen to take the boys back there. It's an amazing oh, place. Yeah, I mean it is a great place to visit and um Mona is fantastic, so definitely worth visiting. Yeah, cool. Right, let's move on to our platform building tip this week. Now, I was interviewed on uh, another podcast <gasps> called Digital Have you been television. cheating on me? No, that's not cheating. That's different. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh all right then. It's all um, in the definition. And the question that was posed to me was for the people out there who are wanting to build their platform and their profile, what are some of the first steps they need to take? So I know I have my number one tip for building your platform, but I'm going to ask you your number one tip for building your platform. Oh, Val. You yeah, could have well, warned me about oh, this. Oh, sorry. Really? You right. should give your number All one right. tip I'll first give... and then I'll back you All up. Right. That would All be right. the fair way to do it, right? All right, fair enough. Okay. If you're going to cheat on me, you have to be fair about <laughs> it. My number one tip for building your platform in, you know, before you even think of what to do or your strategy or anything is that you need to own it. You need to actually embrace it. You know, there's the, there's the saying that you can't be half pregnant. Well, you can't do a half-assed effort in building your profile or your platform because then it simply won't work. And you'll just do a couple of things, dabble around the edges and go, oh, well, it didn't work for me, blah, 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 whinge, whinge. But you, that doesn't need, mean you, it needs to take a hell of a lot of time, but you need to emotionally and mentally and psychologically want to build your platform because if you fundamentally don't um, believe that you should have a platform or you don't want to be in the spotlight or you have those sorts of concepts then you are going to self-sabotage so I think you have to commit yeah you have to commit and that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean committing hours and hours and hours every week it just means committing you know 
emotionally to it. Yeah. That's right. Because my number one tip for building your platform would be that you need to realize that you don't have to be everywhere all the time. I yes. think people have this notion that, you know, to build your author platform, you have to Facebook and Instagram and Tweet and, and, mm. and Google Plus and Pinterest and all of the things all of the time. Um, and this is actually not the case. And I think if you do that, you will drive yourself nuts. So the first thing, my first tip, my number one tip is to choose one thing that you actually like and do that. Because if you do one thing that you actually like and it goes well for you, it will encourage you to then maybe dabble or have a look at at adding a second one. Mm. And um, I think it's really important to realize that the most most successful author platforms are are kind of built brick by brick. They're not sort of the kit thing that's just sort of project home that's thrown up overnight. It's a brick by brick. Um, you know, you start with Twitter and maybe then you add Facebook and maybe then you add something else. And if it's not working, if aspect of that is not working, then, you know, lose it. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. And of course, these and other platform building tips are in Alison's course called mm. How to Build Your Author Platform. And you can find out more at writerscenter.com.au slash platform. And it's an awesome course, which heaps of people have, hundreds of people have gone through now. And it's great to see the successes that they're having because we're actually seeing it because they're building their platform. So fantastic stuff. All right. So we are now at towards the end of our episode this week what are you doing in the coming week uh look I'm just preparing for you know my re-entry into working life once the um well you know into full-time proper actual working life once the um once the school holidays are over and then and then I'm super busy um right up until the end of the year so I'm I'm kind of just going to enjoy these last few days I'm going to take it a little bit easy I'm going to get the closest as I as close as I can to being relaxed which is not very close, but still. Um, And then I'm going to go from there. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. Hmm. Um, Sounds like, well, I won't be eating banoffee pie because. So I thought that like, but well, because now I, the website has been launched. So we we're over that hump and sure Mm -hmm. we're making tweaks along the way. And um, if you do see any tweaks we need to fix to let me know. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, also I've just, I've, I've completed a major project for a corporate client. So I had anticipated that once those two things were over, I would be rewarding myself with Banoffee pie from Chagul Charlie's in um, where I would no in Mona Vale. Do you uh, only get one pie for two projects? Yeah, well, you, like, how much can you, you eat a, at once? Well, don't you get a slice of? But don't didn't you get yourself a slice of pie at the end of the website, and then you get another slice no, of pie because they both ended at the same time? Or, yeah, oh. but that, here's the problem. Uh, the reason I'm not getting it is because I caved and I got it during the process. Because oh, I, Val. <laughs> That's against the rules of Banoffee Pie. I know, pie. but I was in such the depths of like overwhelm that it was the only thing that was going to cheer me up. <laughs> You're going to find that you you need to find the mid project cheer up that is not Banoffee Pie. I know, I know, I know. But since I already had it, I can't have it now. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that Banoffee Pie was so complicated. I know. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't Instagram it. I was too embarrassed. Because you know, I did, you didn't even Instagram it, then it never happened. No, well. that's right, it never happened. That's right. Anyway, where can we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontate.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A L T A I T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. 
And awesome. you, Val? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, yeah, just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook. And feel free to connect with us because we would love to um, connect with you. We would. We love it. So until next episode, have a great week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.